I'm not Adam Savage or Jamie Heineman, or a beloved author who perfected the art of lightness. I'm eh, just a schnook. And welcome to August, fellow schnooks. This is Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 11. And I am the author of this podcastual autobiography, as it will. Yes, podcastual is a word. And my name is Sean. Thank you for for listening, for downloading, for streaming, whatever, whatever. First of all, I apologize for being late with this. I know I said I'd get a podcast out at least once a month, but July has been really wacko busy for me. Very busy. So I'm getting this out as soon as possible in August. There will be another chapter, episode, whatever, at least one more in August. I've already got it partially recorded, thankfully. (laughs) So how are you? Actually, don't answer that. Don't answer that. Because you'll look silly. You'll be like talking to nobody in space, like at work or in your car or perhaps in a bus or train or something. So yeah, don't don't answer that. Or your spouse will overhear you and say, who are you talking to? So, hey, um, I, wow. Why has my July been so busy? Oh man. Well, uh, wow. I had my first physical in three years and despite my obesity, I am pretty darn healthy. (laughs) The only thing that was currently wrong with me was Okay, you have two cholesterol readings, one where you're supposed to be low, like under 200. That is exactly where it should be for me. But there's another cholesterol. I don't don't know the difference. There's another cholesterol reading in which you're supposed to be kind of on the high side. I actually have too little on that. But other than that, my vitamin D is sufficient. I usually have a vitamin D deficiency when I have my physicals, but it turned out that all my physicals were in February and January when you never go outside. But in the summer, that's when the vitamin D is back in uh, where it should be. So I had my physical done, and then the next day, my wife and I had a wonderful extended weekend in Door County, Wisconsin, specifically Sister Bay. It was our first time there, and by God, it's not going to be our last. We had such an amazing time. And yeah, they usually refer to that area just as Door County by the county name. It's on Green Bay, the actual bay. The town Green Bay is probably about 25 miles outside of where we were staying in Sister Bay. But the reason they call it simply by the county is because all the towns there are so tiny. Like Sister Bay only has something like 800 people. But there's so much to do. It is just, I I have a feeling that during the off-season, Sister Bay is so dead because it's very touristy, at least for Chicago people. But we had such a good time there. The people were incredibly friendly. And Lisa and I took a uh, boat tour because we are just, we're fools for boat tours. There's a boat tour, we're going to take it. Even the architectural tour in Chicago, we've done multiple times as residents of Chicago. Well, apparently that's a very common thing in Chicago to do the uh, architectural tour because even the locals love it so much. But we did a boat tour. We had some amazing food. And we stayed at a great hotel. It was, uh, what was it called? The Birchwood, I think. That name sticks out in my mind because Birchwood is also the uh, school where the Peanuts characters attended. <laughs> Thanks to my friend Bill Pepper, who hosts It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, for repeatedly pointing out that it's called Birchwood School. So that name is forever ingrained in my mind. 
And while we were away, while we were in Wisconsin and just chilling out at night, checking our emails and stuff, my niece tagged my wife and me on a Facebook post from a dog rescue in Plainfield, which is outside of Joliet, my hometown. And there was a little three-year-old beagle available. And there was a short video clip of her just kind of being a dog. And um, I guess I should tell you now, uh, my wife and I once again have a beagle. And her name is Lola. And shut up. Yes, I've heard enough of Copacabana. Everybody seems to mention Copacabana, but not many people have mentioned the Kinks song, Lola. Uh, confession, Copacabana is my guilty pleasure. But Lola is a sweet little beagle. She's very mellow. She's in the other room. Now, I'm the only one here. Lola is just sleeping like crazy. She's a lot like our previous beagle, Ruthie, in that regard. The only thing is I think she makes a lot of noise when we're not home. A new neighbor who moved in recently downstairs uh, said, oh, you're the ones with the beagle. Yeah, I hear her all day when you're gone. We're like, oh, crap. He's like, oh, I understand. I had a beagle before. I totally understand. Don't worry about it. And I asked the guy who lives in the apartment next to us, I said, do you hear her? He said, oh, yeah, all the time when I work from home. I was like, oh, God. He said, don't worry. It does not bother me. I can't actually hear her inside. But when I step outside, I can hear her. But another neighbor of ours on on the same floor, she said, yeah, when you guys are gone, I hear her, but only for about 10 minutes, and then she stops. So I don't know. But the thing is, I do want to make sure that she's not suffering from separation anxiety. So we're going to do some uh, different things to try out here. Um, it, it might just be a matter of time. Uh, we've only had her a little over two weeks, so she's still kind of learning how things work. But she's turning out to be an incredibly sweet little dog. Pretty easy to maintain. Not quite as low maintenance as Ruthie was. And uh, we're taking her to some training classes, and we're learning to train her and bond with her. And uh, so far, it's been just nothing but amazing. And I'm just so glad we have a dog again. Oh, boy. And so that's been happening. been doing a lot of work. As uh, I mentioned before, I'm a web developer, and I'm going to mention that again later in this episode. <laughs> we've had some major upgrades we've had to do. So there have been times when I actually have had to be on a phone call at 3 a.m., 5 a.m., because when you do major upgrades to a website, you want to do it during a time that hardly anybody's going to be using it. You want to inconvenience as few people as possible for the shortest time possible. And I know that in a couple of days I'm going to have to get on a phone call at 2 (laughs) a.m., but hey, that's the life of a developer. Thankfully, this is a rare occasion when that happens. Other than that, it's pretty much a 9-to-5 job, so... It's, I, I really like it a lot. I'm having a good time with it. Um, and what else do I have to say? I don't know. But um, the first main segment that I'm going to do for this podcast isn't really autobiographical. But this is called Autobiography of a Schnook, right? So I think I should do something autobiographical. The last time I talked to you, I went over one of those Facebook things that people pass around and say, hey, this will be fun. Let's fill this out. So I have another one of these that I would like to do. Um, and this is courtesy of, again, my friend Bill Pepper, <laughs> who posted this. He said, I don't usually do these, but I figured what the hey. So here's what this thing is asking for. Marriages. Well, yeah, I'm currently married and I've only been married once, uh, which means divorces. The next thing on the list, zero, zero for me. Kids, none. 
none. My wife and I do not have kids and we do not plan to have kids. Uh, we just, we really like being alone with ourselves and our dog. Yeah, our dog, our dogs that we've had, those are our kids. Those are our kids. And we just decided, there, there's a wonderful story about that that I'll tell some other time, about the moment we both finally made it official. We're not having kids. And um, let's see, brothers? I've mentioned before, I have my brother, Scott, who is about 10 years older. And then I have another brother, Jay, who unfortunately died before I was even born. So I never got to meet him. Um, let's see, sisters. I don't have a sister. I do have a sister-in-law and an ex-sister-in-law, though. Um, my wife doesn't have any siblings, so I don't have a sister-in-law on her side. Current pets, I have a dog, a beagle named Lola. I think she's a beagle mix. I don't think she's a pure beagle. We don't know what else she might be. And quite frankly, we don't care. We don't really care. Ruthie, our previous dog, she was most likely a beagle basset mix because her torso was a little bit longer than most beagles and she had kind of somewhat fat paws and feet, kind of like a basset. And there are a lot of habits she had that were kind of bassety. Surgeries. Hmm. I don't, I never really had a, the only thing I might've had a surgery on, I had this growth in the back of my leg. It was kind of like a, a large goose bump or something that was on my, on the back of my leg for years. And I went to a dermatologist just to have a general checkup. And I asked about that and he said, well, has it changed at all over the years? I said, no. He said, does it hurt? No. He said, then yeah, don't, don't worry about it. It's nothing serious. You might want to have that thing removed though. So I did. I had it removed. He said, technically it's a surgery, but I don't know if you'd count it. It was just a quick, it took like maybe three minutes to have done. And I remember after he took that little wart or whatever it was off, he said, okay, now I'm going to send it to a lab for a biopsy. And of course I'm like, oh no, I'm going to have cancer. But no, it turned out it was nothing at all. It was just a weird thing. Whatever he said he thought it was, it was. So, so next tattoos, zero. I, I don't really plan to have any tattoos because, man, you might want a tattoo at one point, then later on you might realize, man, I don't like that anymore. Like, if you might tattoo your girlfriend's name on your arm and you break up later, oh, man. Johnny Depp had a tattoo on his arm, I think it was his arm, that said Winona Forever because he was seeing Winona Ryder at the time. I love what he did, though, after they broke up. He had it partially removed, and now it says Wino Forever. <laughs> Uh, been to an island. Yes, I have been. Yes. Um, I have been to Bermuda. Lisa and I went to Bermuda for our honeymoon. Uh, Manhattan and New York City. Actually, I've been to every borough in New York City except Staten Island. And they're all pretty much islands. Like, well, Brooklyn and Queens are both part of Long Island, so I've been there. I don't think the Bronx is part of an island, but Manhattan is an island. I might have been to Goose Island in Chicago a couple of times. And there is an island on Delavan Lake where my grandparents lived. It's actually walkable. Somebody actually built a little strip of land that connects it. So it's a peninsula now, technically. And Billy Bishop Airport in Toronto is on an island. And you have to take a ferry to get to the mainland. But the weird thing about that is the ferry only goes like 30 feet. There's hard, it's, you get on the ferry, it goes, and you're there already. <laughs> So it's kind of crazy. Flown on a plane? Oh, yeah, all the time. Lots of times. It, several times a year, actually. Go to New Jersey every year at least once. And we usually do a spring break trip. And quite frequently, we do a summer trip as well. So, yeah, flown on a plane. Rode in an ambulance? No, never. Never been in an ambulance. 
If I sing karaoke, yes, yes. Uh, oh man! In fact, it was the, the Bermuda trip. We took a cruise to Bermuda on our honeymoon, and uh, we got to be friendly with the people who sat at our table during the dinners and everything. So we all decided, hey, let's do karaoke tonight. So we did. And as a group, we chose Love Shack. And of course, I was designated to be Fred Schneider, which is an easy task. It's, it's very easy. You just kind of talk like this. It's, anybody who's heard a B-52 song with his vocal on it knows how easy it is to do Fred Schneider. The problem was it turned out that their Love Shack track actually already had the Fred Schneider vocal on it. It was the female vocals that, that were, I suddenly can't think of their names. I'm so sorry. But it had the backing vocals, essentially, that you're supposed to sing with. So I was like, ah, I was redundant. One, one year for my friend Neil's birthday, we went to a karaoke bar with a couple of their friends. And so there was that, I guess. Ice skating? No, I've never been ice skating, never tried. I tried roller skating a few times, and that just turned into a no. Oh, next, next thing, been on a cruise. Yes, I have been. I just talked about that. Rode a motorcycle? No, and I don't plan to. Owned a motorcycle? No, and don't plan to. Rode on a horse? Yeah, every little kid's been on a horse for at least three seconds, and I seem to remember there was like a neighborhood party one year when I, back during when I was a little kid, and there was like a horse that would take you around in a circle, so I rode on that, I'm sure. Stayed in a hospital? No, never had to do that. Favorite fruit? Oh, man, that's a wonderful thing right there. I, I really don't know. Sometimes I'm just, I really, really, really love blueberries. Sometimes I get on an apple kick. Sometimes I get on a banana kick. So I don't know. I don't know. Blackberries are pretty good too, especially in this ginger ale that I drink sometimes. I think it's Canada Dry. That's one of those big ginger ale companies, but yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Favorite day. Oh man. I think it means favorite day of the week. Uh, Friday is my favorite day. And especially since uh, my company that I work for got bought out by our biggest client and we inherited their half-day Friday policy, which means that work permitting, if you work 36 hours the rest of the week, then you can cut out after four hours on Friday, which I think is a sweet deal, really sweet deal. So it's like my weekend is now two and a half days, assuming everything goes well. Favorite color. Oh, this is going to sound weird, but I think black is my favorite color because it goes with everything. Pink goes with everything, too. I wonder if there's any other color besides bink, bink? No, pink and black that go together. And the next one, last phone call, was um, actually the website that I worked for. I placed a test order. It's an ordering site specifically on the Spanish translation of the site, because it turned out it wasn't working properly. Half the site was showing up in English, and sometimes the order confirmation wouldn't appear, so I placed an order, and I put all throughout the order, uh, test order, do not fulfill this order, do not fulfill, do not fulfill. And so they actually called me and said, hey, I'm just double-checking uh, this test. This is a test order, and we're not supposed to... And they, I said, yes, so... They said, okay, great. We just want to double check. I said, thank you for checking. <laughs> so that was my last phone call. Everything else has been like over text messages and stuff. Coffee or tea? I do not like coffee. I don't. I know that coffee really is healthy in moderation, but I don't like it. I really don't. I drink tea. I love, 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 love Southern style sweet tea. Oh my God, it's so amazing, especially on a hot day. 
my wife makes some great iced tea. It's uh, sweetened, but not that sweet. Uh, and I also have been really getting into unsweetened iced tea in the past couple of years. And it occurred to me, unsweetened iced tea has zero calories. And I love drinking stuff. I really do. And iced tea with no calories. And if it tastes good, oh my, especially if they put like blueberry or blackberry in it, whoo, no calories. You can drink as much of that crap as you want. That's a pretty darn good deal. Uh, next on the list, favorite pie. Uh, I'm not much of a pie person, actually. Crust kind of, I'll tell you this. I'm not a big fan of fruit pies. Although a good blueberry pie, oh, there's a place in uh, New Jersey, in uh, Colts Neck, New Jersey, by the shore. I might have mentioned this before. They're called Delicious Orchards. They make some amazing blueberry pie. Oh, that's really good. But I tend to prefer desserty kind of pie. Like, uh, Well, I know fruit pies are desserty, but more like chocolate, custard, those kind of pies. Cracker Barrel, of all places, used to make some amazing peanut butter pie. Oh, that was so good. But it's not on the menu anymore. I'm sure if Brad's wife were still there, it would be, though. She would have made sure that it happened. <laughs> Favorite pizza. I'm actually going to talk about that in the first main segment of today's show. But judging from the way that Bill responded to this, you could interpret that as favorite pizza toppings. Usually my go-to topping is pepperoni, but lately I've found that bacon is an amazing pizza topping. So sometimes I'll have pepperoni and bacon, sometimes I'll just have bacon. Let's see, cat or dog? Dog. I've, al I've always loved dogs, ever since my grandparents' dachshund, Herman. Uh, I knew Herman since I was a baby, and uh, he lived to be about 10 years old, I think. I love dogs ever since. Cats, I'm not a big fan of, but they're okay, I guess. But I think one problem I have with cats is simply that I'm allergic. And from what I understand, I'm not allergic to the dander. It's the saliva. I'm allergic to cat saliva. Cats bathe themselves a lot. So if, I, if I'm anywhere near a cat, my eyes water up and I get all itchy and, you know... I used to not like cats, but I've learned to accept cats for what they are as animals and things. And, you know, they're okay, but I'm allergic. So, but yet somehow I, th I feel that if I were allergic to dogs, I would find a way to deal with it. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Favorite season, summer. I, I just love summer. I really do. Love the warm weather. I love air conditioning too. Fall's actually pretty cool too, especially before November. But hey, favorite holiday. Oh man. Um, probably Christmas. Just because hey, it's togetherness, it's baked goods, you know. It's a good food holiday, a good food holiday. Uh, see, favorite sports? I don't know, I don't know. I, I grew up in the Chicago area, and I am a Chicago resident. It's hard to not be a Bears fan. It happens. I know plenty of Packers fans in Chicago, but it's hard not to be a Bears fan. I, I never miss a Bears game. I love watching NFL football. I loved high school football. So as a spectator, probably football. As a participant, I would have to say basketball. I haven't played basketball in a long, long, long time, but it's a fun sport to play and it gives you an amazing workout. It really does. Especially if you're playing against good people, which I am not, by the way. <laughs> I, I'm not that good in basketball, but I, I still, it, it's a fun thing to do. One thing I do not like though, baseball. I, I gotta say it. I gotta say, I just don't like baseball. It's boring. I just find it boring. Long times go when nothing happens. It's like, just throw the freaking ball already. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a Northsider, I was beyond thrilled 
when the Cubs finally won the World Series, but it was more bandwagoning, I think. And I, I do love like the old fashionedness of the Cubs. And I, I do have to say, I've been to a, a I went to a Yankees game at Yankee Stadium, the uh, old Yankee Stadium, that is. I took my dad there once when he, my parents were visiting in New Jersey. My dad's been a Yankees fan since he was in the womb, and he's never lived more than 60 miles outside of Chicago. Go figure. But I took him to a Yankees game, and I really had a good time, I, I have to say. Apparently, he did, too. For years, my mom would tell me how he just would not shut up about that day, despite the fact that the Yankees lost. But he was thrilled to pieces t- to see Yankee Stadium. But... uh See, going on, uh, favorite book. Oh, God, that's hard. I've, it's hard to come up with a single favorite book. There are a lot of books that I've read. And since uh, I'm talking about my friend Bill and two things he's done already that contributed unwittingly to this podcast, he wrote an amazing book for Christmas. It's called uh, In the St. Nick of Time. I think I mentioned it before. Fun book to read. Uh, another recent book that I've read is called Forward March. It's a young adult novel, actually about a girl who's in the school band. It's a really, really fun read. It's uh, written by my friend Carrie, and I, it, it is so much fun to read that book. I, I, I couldn't put it down, and I will link it in the online bibliography. Oh, I should mention this because you're going to hear this mentioned a couple of times later on. There's a series of books, or five books, called The Straight Dope by Cecil Adams based on the newspaper column done by Cecil Adams. Uh, there are five books that compiled his columns, and they haven't put out a new book in almost 20 years, despite the fact that the column's still going strong. So I don't, I don't know what's up with that. Um, see, to kill, everybody loves To Kill a Mockingbird, so I have to mention that. I, I had to read that for school, but man, I loved it so much. I'm not really a fiction person. So yeah, that's three fiction books I mentioned so far that I loved. <laughs> Go figure, and I'm not a fiction person. I'm much more of a nonfiction person. Uh, as a Beatles fan, anything and everything written by Mark Lewis, and oh my God, he's the ultimate authority in the Beatles. And coming in at a close second, Bruce Spizer. He does amazing, amazing books on the Beatles. Favorite movie? Oh, this is easy. The Blues Brothers, hands down. Hands down. My favorite movie. There's so much about that movie that I love. There's so much depth to it. The story is great. The characters are great. And it's kind of a time capsule as to what was going on in Chicago. Because the whole plot of the movie is that Elwood and Jake are trying to raise money to pay for an orphanage's taxes, $5,000. Here's the thing. The orphanage was owned by the Catholic Church. And what do we know about religious properties? That's right, they don't have to pay taxes. But, but here's the thing. Back at the time that film was made... There was some talk going around about possibly changing that rule, at least in Illinois or Chicago, so that, uh, or maybe Cook County, so that churches would have to pay taxes. So it might have been based on that. And there was something else in the movie. When uh, the Illinois Nazis were marching, right around the time that film was made, a similar thing happened. Like, Illinois Nazis won their court case, so they were given a permit to hold a march. They ended up not marching thankfully uh, there would have that would have been a huge disaster the music in that movie is outstanding the plot is great and of course i love seeing my city being portrayed so well in that movie it's just amazing uh not too distant second favorite that thing you do wonderful tom hanks movie surprise surprise my two favorite movies have a lot of music involvement <laughs> 
But that was it. It says, um, to go into your own status, paste and change your answers. Okay, yeah, I didn't do that, but instead I just used it here in this podcast. But I think now's a good time to get into the main portion of the podcast. And this first segment is going to be, first main segment, I should say, is going to be Chicago mythology. going to be talking about five myths about Chicago that just don't seem to die. Well, I got a feeling they're still not going to die. I have, what, four listeners? But spread the knowledge. Spread the word. Here's what people think about where I live, but I'm going to tell you the reality. I'm going to start my Chicago mythology segment with the most basic thing about Chicago that a lot of people kind of sort of get wrong, and that is its most famous nickname. Well, Chicago has many nicknames. There's the Second City, the City That Works, the City of Broad Shoulders, and of course, the Windy City. To the uneducated or uninitiated, people might think that Chicago got its nickname the Windy City because of its weather. Well, many Chicago historians will tell you, no, that's not the case at all. It actually got its nickname because of the wind caused by the hot air from Chicago politicians. Specifically, the nickname for Chicago came from a comment made by Charles Dana in the 1890s. Charles Dana was an editor for the New York Sun. Chicago had landed a pretty sweet deal. The city got to host the 1893 World's Fair, which would be called, of course, the World's Columbian Exposition to honor the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus arriving in the Americas. I recently read the book The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. That book is about two very specific aspects of the Columbian Exposition. I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting read, especially if you want to build your vocabulary. And yeah, judging from th- just reading in that book alone, Chicago was very, very proud of landing that expo. And Chicago's civic leaders were not the least bit shy about being proud. Charles Dana asked his New York Post readers to ignore, and I quote, the nonsensical claims of that windy city. Windy, of course, meaning that they won't shut up. But there it is. Chicago's Windy City nickname is born. (gasps) Or is it? I shall explain. For my reference here, I'm using a syndicated newspaper column called The Straight Dope, which runs mainly in those free newspapers you see in some big cities. The author, Cecil Adams, is most likely the alias of credited editor Ed Zotti, who currently is a part-time columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. The point of the straight dope is simply, you send Cecil a question, and he painstakingly researches it and answers it. There have been five books published compiling the straight dope's columns by category, and they are excellent reads. I highly recommend them. I was actually turned on to The Straight Dope when I was working my first job at the Joliet Public Library, and the book The Straight Dope, A Compendium of Human Knowledge, was on a cart of returned books that I was shelving. The cover piqued my curiosity. According to the cover and the blurb on the back, 
Cecil would answer mysterious questions, such as, what are the real lyrics to Louie Louie? And, hand to God, this is the truth. If every man, woman, and child in China jumped off chairs at the same time, would the impact of all those people landing at the same time knock the Earth off its orbit? And if they all screamed at the tops of their lungs before jumping, would we be able to hear it in the United States? And if so, how long would the delay be? Uh, spoiler alert, he refused to address the part about screaming at the tops of their lungs. Specifically, the column that I'm going to be using to reference my research for this particular myth-busting, as it were, is the September 17th, 1999 column in which Cecil was addressing a reader from New York named Barry Popick. Oh, fun fact, that was the day before my wedding. I'll talk about that day on another episode, to be sure. But anyway, Barry Popick actually poured through some periodicals from those days and found that the Windy City nickname actually was born around 1886, taking over the town's previous nickname of the Garden City. Specifically, he found a Windy City reference in a January 1886 article in the Louisville Courier-Journal referring to the wind blowing off Lake Michigan. Later, after that original straight dope column was published, Popick sent Cecil another reference to Windy City, this time from the September 19, 1885 edition of the Cleveland Gazette, whose front page ran an article headlined, From the Windy City. And I will link that article in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Popick told Cecil, and I quote, We can now say that Windy City was born in 1885 and was popularized in 1886. But, Cecil Adams says, not so fast. The article itself makes no further reference to the phrase Windy City outside of the headline, which kind of implies that the nickname was already well-known to the point that folks in the Cuyahoga Valley would recognize the Windy City to be Chicago. For what it's worth, though, many recent Chicago references now point to this article as a possible published origin of the phrase Windy City. Um, except it wasn't. On May 6, 2003, Barry Popick referred to an article on the front page of the Cincinnati Enquirer from three years prior to that reference, almost to the day, September 11, 1882. The title read, Chicago's Record, Crimes of a Day in the Windy City, and of course, that will also be linked in the online bibliography. And it looks like later on, Barry Popick found yet an earlier reference to Chicago as being the Windy City, again from the Cincinnati Enquirer, this time from July 17, 1880. I was unable to find a complete transcript of the article without having to pay for it. A hint, there is a Donate Now button at schnookpodcast.com. But the sentence in the article reads, Maud S. and Dream were shipped to Chicago last night in a special car, the property of W.H. Vanderbilt. Both nags were in apple pie condition and will give a good account of themselves in the Windy City. So, what are nags? Was it like a couple of people nagging each other? No. Apparently, a nag is a horse, especially one that's old or in poor condition. Judging from the context and the names, the article is saying that horses were moved to Chicago, but how are they going to give an account of their experience there? I don't know, apparently there were talking horses in 1880. Either that or the article was using Webster's number four definition, meaning value or importance. But regardless, Popick didn't stop there. Cecil reported yet another of Barry Popick's findings, again from our friends at the Cincinnati Enquirer, 
from February 12, 1877, an article entitled Chicago Letter, Gossip and Impressions of the Windy City. And then going back even further, May 9th, 1876, again from the Inquirer, that windy city, some of the freaks of the latest Chicago tornado. So there we have it. Proof that, number one, the story that both of Chicago's current major newspapers, the Tribune and the Sun-Times, stick to about Charles Dana originating the nickname when writing about the Columbian Expo, and number two, that the Windy City nickname refers to political windbags and not literal weather, are simply false. It literally is because of the weather. Oh, and what's more... Barry Popick found two references to Chicago as the Garden City in the Inquirer in April 1876, which would imply that the May 9th reference was a very, very early use of the nickname Windy City. So the next time a self-proclaimed Chicago expert tries to tell you that the Windy City is not about actual wind, well, refer that person to me. I may be just a schnook, but damn it, I do my research. And by the way, I will link the Straight Dope article about the nickname The Windy City in the online bibliography. And speaking of Chicago nicknames, here's another thing that I have to uh, kind of address here. Chicago has kind of sort of taken on recently a nickname of Chirac, although it's kind of been dying down, thankfully. And Chirac is something I really need to just tell people to shut up about. But you see what they did there, Chirac, because Chicago, Shy and Iraq, <laughs> Chirac, Chicago, <laughs> funny. <laughs> anyway, why does it have that nickname? Well, because Chicago has this reputation of being a murder capital. It is true, we do have way too many murders in this town. But then again, you're listening to a guy who believes that one murder is way too many. And it's true. Turn on the Chicago news and you'll hear of multiple people shot and often killed, especially when summer is in full swing. Chicago, like just about any other major city, has a gang problem. A vast majority of murders in the city is gang-related with targeted victims and, uh, unfortunately, sometimes innocent bystanders are hit by stray bullets from the gang wars. And the thing is, most of these murders tend to happen in two parts of the city. One pocket on the west side and another pocket on the south side in the Englewood neighborhood. I'm not saying everywhere else in the city is crime-free, but those two parts of the city have by far the highest concentration of violent crimes, basically the inner city. I'm sure part of it is connected to the segregation in the city, and yeah, that's it's true, and it's kind of sad, but due to uh, past history in Chicago, the city is to an extent segregated. Statistically, you have African Americans on the south side, Hispanics on the west side, and white people on the north side. Without going into too much detail, many blame legendary mayor Richard J. Daley, sometimes called King Richard I, of forcing this segregation, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But yeah, Chicago does have a problem with violent crime, but again, so does just about every other major city. The problem is, for some reason, it's Chicago that tends to get all the publicity. But here's the truth. Chicago is actually pretty darn safe. If you look at the crime statistics, you'll find that Chicago isn't even in the top 30 most violent cities in the United States. For crying out loud, frickin' Anchorage, Alaska outranks Chicago by far in the violent crime statistics. And The Price is Right actually gives away vacations to Chicago as prizes. 
Why would one of the most beloved game shows in the country make their contestants go to a violent city? Guess what? They don't. If you hang out in the touristy parts of Chicago, like, say, the Magnificent Mile, yeah, you'll want to watch yourself. Sometimes there are reports of pickpockets and apple pickers, as they're called. But you'll still be pretty safe. I've worked in that area for three years so far, and the worst thing I've ever experienced was a harmless panhandler or two. Go to Wrigleyville on the north side, and people will be too drunk to do anything to you. You can have a leisurely walk around Hyde Park, Beverly, Pilsen, Edgewater, Lincoln Square, Avondale, Edison Park, and a lot more neighborhoods in this city without having to worry if you'll return home intact. Of course, you should always be vigilant and watch your surroundings, but rest assured it's pretty safe. Just don't hang around gangbangers and you'll be fine. Come to Chicago, enjoy the lakefront, take the architectural boat tour, uh, which, by the way, is so cool that even we locals do it multiple times. Check out our museums, go record shopping, visit Lincoln Park Zoo, which is free, by the way. Come out here and enjoy yourself. It's a safe, clean, and beautiful city. And while you are here enjoying our beautiful city, enjoy our food. Chicago is a food town, big time. I always say if you're trying to control your diet, then Chicago is probably the third worst place to visit in the United States. Second worst would have to be Austin, Texas, and the first worst easily is New Orleans. On top of a pizza. Probably the first food that comes to most people's mind when you talk about Chicago is its famous, or perhaps infamous, deep dish pizza. And that's something I have to myth bust right now. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with this delicacy, the pizza crust is cooked inside a pan that's a couple of inches thick. And that extra depth provides for a much bigger layer of toppings than does your standard everyday pizza. Many who aren't from the Chicago area, including folks who like deep dish, will argue that whatever you call it, it's not pizza. Some will call it a casserole, but whatever it is, it's got crust, it's got mozzarella cheese, tomato sauce, and toppings of your choice. So crust, mozzarella, tomato sauce, toppings, that's a pizza. That's a pizza. Technically, these thick slabs of pizza have two different styles. There's your standard deep dish, and then there's stuffed. In terms of flavor and probably calorie count, there's no noticeable difference between deep dish and stuffed. But the difference between the two is that stuffed pizza has crust on the bottom, then toppings, and then above the toppings you have one more layer of crust. And that second layer of crust honestly is so paper thin, so for all intents and purposes, basically stuffed pizza is the same thing as deep dish. There are four major players in the deep dish game in Chicago. The consensus is that Deep Dish originated with Pizzeria Uno, which is at the corner of State Street and Ohio Street downtown. Catter-cornered from Pizzeria Uno is Pizzeria Due. See what they did there? And that's basically Uno's second location, an overflow if you will. Same menu, same ingredients, same prices, same everything. Oh yeah, and by the way, that's Catter-corner. Not Kitty Corner, not Catty Corner. The word is Catter-corner. <laughs> A company outside of Boston now owns Pizzeria Uno, and it opened up several Uno Chicago Grill restaurants, as they call them, in various parts of the country. But if you want the real thing, you gotta go to one of those flagship locations in Chicago, either Pizzeria Uno or Pizzeria Due. 
Gino's East is another purveyor of deep dish pizza, another big one. I believe you'll find Gino's East exclusively in Chicago and nearby suburbs. I might be wrong about that. But why is it called Gino's East? Well, quite simply because the founder just wanted to call it Gino's, but he learned that there was already another place called Gino's. So he tacked the word East onto the name just to distinguish his restaurant from the other ones. Just to distinguish his restaurant from the other Gino's. My personal favorite deep dish from all the main players, Giordano's. Uh, Giordano's is more of a chain these days, but with most locations in Chicago and the Chicago suburbs. Uh, I love Giordano's because of uh, the buttery flavor on their crust. Uh, I love the other ones too, don't get me wrong. Uh, Then the fourth big name in Chicago deep dish pizza is Lou Malnati's, which actually started not in Chicago, but in Lincolnwood, a suburb just outside of the central north-ish border of the city. Lou Malnati's now has several locations in the city of Chicago. If you watch The Daily Show, you might remember the time that Jon Stewart went off on a rant about how Chicago deep dish pizza is all kind of wrong. Well, Mark Malnati, who is currently the owner of Lou Malnati's, asked for and was granted equal time. So Jon Stewart and Mark Malnati both had a slice of deep dish, and Jon Stewart quietly admitted, this is delicious. Now, Pizzeria Uno started it all, but the other three places were started by former employees of Uno. I think at least one or two of them started because said employees really wanted to run their own businesses and basically took what they learned from Ike Sewell, who founded Pizzeria Uno. And I think one of the other ones might have been started by a disgruntled ex-employee of Uno, but I'm not 100% sure about that. There are differences with each of the big players. Giordano's and Uno use flour-based crust, but the crusts at Lou Malnati's and Gino's East are cornmeal-based. Giordano's is the stuffed variation, and Lou Malnati's deep dish is not quite as deep as the rest. If you go to Giordano's and Lou Malnati's, you can actually get thin crust pizza as well. I'm pretty sure that at Pizzeria Uno and Gino's East, it's all deep dish. But whatever the case, if you order a deep dish from any of these locations, kick back and chill out for a while because they're cooked to order and take anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour before they're served. In fact, at Pizzeria Uno and Pizzeria Due, you actually have to order your pizza as soon as you enter, before the host even seats you. Now, if you've never had deep dish, there's something important you need to understand. And that's the word deep. Please understand the definition of deep. You know the deep end of a swimming pool and why it's called deep? Yeah, because the water is deep. I think it was 2003 when my wife and I were visiting my parents. This was during the time we lived in New Jersey. And we spent a day in Chicago. We had lunch at Pizzeria Due. A couple of tables over from us, there was a couple from New York City. I believe the Upper West Side of Manhattan, if I remember correctly. And in addition to that, they were London expats. If you're from New York, pizza to you is ultra thin and one person could easily finish a large, or possibly extra-large, New York-style pizza, and even after that, still be hungry. So this couple thought nothing of ordering a large pizza. Not, not each, mind you, but a large pizza that the two of them would share. Now, when their large deep dish was put down on the table, their jaws dropped in the horror of the monstrosity that was plunked down in front of them. They each ate one slice, and the waitress offered to box up the rest, but they said, no, 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 just take it, just take it. 
Lisa and I have a feeling that downtown deep dish locations see this kind of thing happen all the time and probably give the leftovers to the kitchen staff. Trust me, if you've never had a deep dish before, just order a personal size for yourself. I believe Giordano's doesn't really have a personal size, but if you go to Giordano's, order a small and be prepared to have to box it up because you might not be able to finish a small Giordano's deep dish in one sitting. Now, one deep dish myth I need to shut down is the belief that you need a knife and fork to eat it. That's another reason naysayers rant about deep dish. You're not supposed to eat pizza with a knife and fork. Well, just ask Bill de Blasio what happened when word got out that he was eating pizza with a knife and fork. I'll tell you something. I never, ever use a knife and fork for pizza, ever, deep dish or otherwise. The only reason you would need one is if the pizza is too hot to hold with your hands. It's one thing to cut a chunk of pizza off and eat it with your fork when the entire slice of pizza is too hot to hold, but to hold a heavy pizza in your hand when it's not is another thing. Personally, I always wait for my pizza to cool down for a few minutes, then I use my hand. I don't use a knife and fork. Well, especially if it's Lou Malnati's. Lou Malnati's is pretty thin for a deep dish, so it doesn't take too long to cool off. As for my personal tastes, well, I love deep dish. I love it a lot. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Except for my eight years in New Jersey, I lived either in or near Chicago my whole life, but I never had deep dish until I was 19 or 20 years old. And it wasn't even in Chicago, but Detroit. And yeah, I know Detroit has its own style of deep dish, but the pizza that I had in Detroit was specifically Chicago style deep dish. And man, it was so good. Oh my goodness. I love me some deep dish, but it's not my favorite type of pizza. My favorite type actually is kind of in the middle, thick crust pizza. It's not the most common pizza in the world, but there is a pizza joint in my neighborhood, Pizzeria Aroma. They have thick crust as an option in addition to deep dish and thin crust. By the way, Pizzeria Aroma, uh, if you want to help out a grassroots podcast that originates in your neighborhood, give me an email. We'll do lunch. Hopefully some of your pizza. To me, a pizza has to have some kind of body to it. That thin crust crap from the New York area, you know, the kind you're supposed to fold before you eat it, has no body to it whatsoever. It droops, and the cheese tends to come off completely in one bite. Man, that's one reason I wanted to get the hell out of New Jersey. I couldn't deal with the pizza. Good God, you're supposed to fold the damn thing? Listen, when someone serves you food, it should be ready to eat without you having to do anything different with the food, save for maybe some condiments if you wish. Jeez, if you think it's acceptable that you have to fold your food, then what if someone served you an omelet that wasn't folded over, huh? Would you like that? <clears throat> Sorry, um, as you can see or hear, actually, uh, I'm very passionate about this. But speaking of thin crust pizza, even though I personally prefer thick crust, my favorite pizza place in Chicago is called Peace. It's in the Wicker Park neighborhood on the near north side. One of the co-owners of Peace is one Rick Nielsen from the band Cheap Trick. And quite frequently, you'll see one of his guitars out on display over there. The thing about Peace it's actually thin crust, and I don't know what it is, but there's something about it that's just so freaking good. It's made really well with great ingredients, and the overall vibe of the place is really cool. Now, the thing is, friends, 
a lot of Chicagoans, especially those whose Chicago roots go way back, will tell you that real Chicago-style pizza is not deep dish, but thin crust and cut in rows and columns. Well, they actually say squares, but I'm very particular about my definition of square. I use the mathematical definition that means an equilateral parallelogram containing all right angles. That is an equilateral rectangle. Anyway, what's more, these alleged Chicago pizza purists say that this style of pizza is the best. Really? With pieces that have no crust on the edges? And on those inner pieces, the cheese will come off unless you physically hold it down with your fingertips? Are you people nuts? But alas, it does appear that true Chicago-style pizza is indeed thin crust cut in rows and columns. There have been times that I'd order thin crust pizza from any number of local pizza joints, and unless I specifically say pie cut, it comes out in rows and columns, and I just can't deal with that. Nonetheless, that, folks, apparently is Chicago-style pizza. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I know I'm kind of going back and forth here, but I'm kind of putting these in the order they need to be addressed, if for no other reason for simple transitions, which this is not. But I'll get back to Chicago cuisine in a moment. Right now, I want to go back to the weather. There seems to be a belief that Chicago gets maybe six weeks of warm weather a year. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We get all four seasons with a pretty even distribution, actually. Of course, the old joke is, Chicago has two seasons, winter and construction season. And I swear, I've heard that joke everywhere north of the Mason-Dixon line. But I guess the reason we hear it in Chicago all the time is, well, we can get brutal winters, but we also have mellow winters. But when they are brutal, we have icy roads. In the city, they're usually pretty good at salting the roads, but still... Icy roads and salted roads lead to potholes, which lead to bigger potholes, which lead to, unfortunately, necessary construction. Going through the city itself, we have a lot of expressways. We have the Dan Ryan, the Edens, the Bishop Ford, the Eisenhower, the Kennedy, the Chicago Skyway, Lakeshore Drive, the Stevenson. Lots of heavily used expressways means lots of infrastructure that needs regular maintenance. In the suburbs, you have Interstates 90, 94, 80, 294, 355, 88, 290, all of which get heavily used. So yeah, construction season is basically as soon as the weather is good enough to mix the cement. But still though, four seasons. We have four seasons. As I said, winter can be mellow or brutally cold, but we always get at least a little bit of snow during the winter, at most a couple of feet, but the worst of the winter is usually in late January and February. Spring is, well, usually pretty miserable because the transition from winter into spring is usually very drippy and gray. Summers can get pretty hot around July and August. In fact, as I record this, we just came off a nasty heat wave in which the day before, actually, it was in the hundreds Fahrenheit to you uh, centigrade folks. And every few years, we do get three-digit temperatures. Septembers are usually just amazing. They're usually beautiful here. Fall is usually pretty tolerable, pretty nice, but it does get a little bit dreary in November. I mentioned how winter can be brutal. Well, it's not always brutal, but it can be. Well, what exactly is brutal? Well, below zero temperatures. And something that I recently learned, below zero temperatures are not actually measured, they're calculated. 
I found this out when it was announced that Chicago public schools would be closed due to dangerous cold temperatures when it got like 10 below a couple of years ago. And there were people on Facebook and other platforms saying, I used to walk to school in 35 below weather. Well, God bless him. Tom Skilling, who is a legendary meteorologist here and also lives in my neighborhood, he chimed in and said that below zero temperatures are calculated much differently from how they were calculated many years ago, and how someone's 35 below from, say, 30 years ago might be the equivalent of 5 below today. The fact is, it's dangerous to be outside in below zero weather. And rather than have kids walk to school, um, an alarmingly high number of school students in Chicago live in poverty and can't be driven, and a lot of them don't live near mass transit. So they close the schools for their safety. I remember one day at my previous job, oh, I hated that place, one of the most annoying jobs I ever had. Man, getting laid off from there was one of the happiest moments I had in years. Uh, it was pretty dang... Anyway, I, I won't talk about that right now. But anyway, it was pretty dang cold out. The company was owned by twin brothers who lived in Beverly Hills, California. Well, one of them called the office and asked me how the legendary Chicago weather was that day. And I said, well, Mark, it's going to be below zero later today. And he said, whoa, below zero? I never heard of that. I guess that's why they call it the Windy City, huh? <laughs> and see my previous rant for my response to that. But since I talked about weather, yeah, again, the weather here, it's seasonal. You get cold weather, you get warm weather, you get hot weather, you get cool weather. Just like anywhere else where the season changes pretty regularly. So I went from weather to food to weather, and now I'm going back to food. Perhaps the number one thing I need to talk about is, well, Chicago is considered one of the holy cities of the hot dog. We are proud of our all-beef tube steaks. And yes, you know what I'm going to mention next. For the love of God, do not put ketchup on your hot dog. So what do you put on your hot dog if you want all the toppings on it? For a good portion of my explanation of the Chicago hot dog and why there's no ketchup on it, I'm once again going to use the straight dope as my main reference. This time it's from the August 30th, 1991 column, which I will link in the online bibliography, or if you prefer the old-fashioned way of reading, you can find this column on page 95 of the book Return of the Straight Dope. According to what Cecil writes in that column, the ingredients are in this order, mustard, um, it's not explicitly stated in the column, but specifically it should be yellow mustard, relish, chopped onion, sliced tomato, kosher pickle spear, optional sport peppers, and celery salt. Well, here's a confession for you. As much as I love Chicago and Chicago's specialty foods, I've never really had a Chicago hot dog. <gasps> because I cannot stand onions. Just the slightest hint of onion as a topping, even just the flavor itself, can make me throw up and has made me throw up on more than one occasion. Even if you take the onion off, the flavor is still lingering. Also, I'm not a fan of peppers. To me, peppers look like snot, and I just cannot stomach the thought of eating those things. But at least peppers are optional on a Chicago hot dog. And honestly, I'm not really a fan of solid tomatoes either, although I do occasionally eat a burger in a restaurant without removing the tomato. And in New Orleans, I leave the tomato on my po'boys, and they're still amazing. But my hot dogs are usually pretty basic, just mustard and relish. 
And when I'm home, the mustard is usually a brown mustard or a Dijon mustard, even though technically you're supposed to put yellow mustard on it. Now that I think of it, actually lately I've been avoiding hot dogs in favor of Polish sausage. Man, go to a neighborhood Vienna beef joint, get yourself a charred Polish with mustard and relish, and it's pure bliss. But anyway, let me get back to that ketchup thing. According to Cecil, the reason that you don't want to put ketchup on your hot dog is, and I quote, ketchup smothers the flavor of the hot dog because ketchup makers add sugar to their products. That takes the edge off the highly acidic tomatoes, but it takes the edge off everything else too. Now, Cecil Adams talked to Mel Plotsky, who at the time was the sales manager at David Berg Hot Dogs in Chicago. Mel Plotsky, who calls ketchup the catch-all of garbage, says that parents love adding ketchup to things because it takes the edge off the flavors. Cecil sums up Plotsky's comment by saying, put ketchup on it and a kid will swallow anything. Well, I won't go that far. For a long time when I was a kid, I hated ketchup on anything. Mustard was my go-to condiment for a long time. I do like ketchup now, though. I use ketchup on my fries and other things. But uh. Anyway, while you are not putting ketchup on your hot dog, also be careful of the mustard you put on it, Cecil says. According to the advice of Mel Plotsky, a lot of your big-name brands have a large amount of turmeric and other ingredients that kill the beef flavor of a hot dog. He specifically singled out French's mustard, but personally, I would also like to suggest that Heinz is probably not a good hot dog mustard either, because Heinz has a very prominent vinegar flavor that'll distract your taste buds from the hot dog. Cecil Adams, he suggests that to enhance the flavor of the beef, consider using a mustard like Plockman's. And uh, Plockman's is actually made about 55 miles south of Chicago in Mantino, Illinois, but you can find it in all the stores around here and possibly uh, other places. It's a fat yellow bottle with a thin red top. It looks like it would fit perfectly for a hot dog stand. <laughs> Additionally, Cecil says that a hot dog should be steamed or grilled. Personally, I would like to say grill that sucker and char it a bit. Cecil says do not boil your hot dog or else it'll be turned to, as he says, non-tooth-resistant mush. I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, when I was a kid, my mom would cook hot dogs by boiling them for six minutes. And let me tell you, boiling is probably the worst possible way to cook a hot dog. Hell, cooking hot dogs in a freaking microwave is even way better than boiling it. On top of that, my parents usually bought Oscar Mayer hot dogs. Oh, the worst I've ever had. And for a Chicago-based company such as Oscar Mayer to make crappy hot dogs should be considered mortal sin. But yeah, you want a good all-beef hot dog, ideally a Vienna beef hot dog. Vienna beef hot dogs, when they're cooked properly, you bite into them, there's a really amazing snap to it. And uh, actually, their Polish sausage is the same way, too. But anyway, yeah, in Chicago, the no-ketchup rule is very hyped up. Some hot dog joints, uh, Gold Coast Dogs comes to mind actually have a sign on their counters, and the sign says, it is considered bad manners and harmful to your taste buds to put ketchup on your hot dog within the city limits of Chicago. Well, not just the city limits, there's a hot dog stand named Gene and Jude's, or depending on which of their signs you read, Jeans and Jude's. Gene and Jude's has been around since 1945. It started out on the west side of Chicago, but several decades ago they moved to River Grove, the same town where my maternal grandparents were buried. Gene and Jude's is legendary, primarily because people love their hot dogs. 
You order a hot dog with fries and they'll wrap up your hot dog with the fries right on top of it. One thing you will not find at Gene and Jude's, ketchup. They literally do not have it on the premises because the managers are that serious about ketchup. They don't want to take a chance that a customer is going to put ketchup on a hot dog. I did read a story of a Gene and Jude's employee who thought that was a stupid rule, so he brought some ketchup in for people who wanted them for their French fries. But one day the manager came in and saw it and inspected the entire building from floor to ceiling and heave hoed all of the ketchup. People would get in the habit of going to Gene and Jude's and then going next door to McDonald's just to get ketchup packets. And when McDonald's caught wind of that, they started charging for their ketchup packets. So, Sean, you're saying that the no ketchup on a hot dog rule is a myth, but aren't you contradicting yourself here by, well, giving us undeniable proof that it's a rule in Chicago? I hear you all say. Uh, strangely in unison, too. Well, not quite. I mean, yes, that is a hard rule in Chicago, but I'll let you in on a secret. It's not just Chicago. First of all, in the Straight Dope's ketchup column, Cecil Adams was responding to a reader in Montreal. Montreal, not Chicago, and in fact, nowhere in his letter did Paul McNeil even mention Chicago. He starts off his letter by saying, and I quote, I was sitting at the Montreal pool room eating my all-dressed hot dog, and suddenly the question hit me, why is there no ketchup in an all-dressed? Again, Montreal. So even outside of the United States, they don't put ketchup on hot dogs. Famous Southern California hot dog vendor Pink's go to their website, which I will link in the online bibliography, and you'll see a ton of hot dog entrees on the menu. Not a single one of them has ketchup. If you go to Nathan's in New York, they don't put ketchup on their hot dogs either. A few years ago, I was channel surfing. I happened upon a hot dog show on Food Network. On the show, they had talked to some hot dog vendors in Chicago, New York, California, Kansas, and somewhere in the Southwest, I think New Mexico. Each vendor made hot dogs in a completely different way with different combinations of toppings that were common in their locales. At the end of the show, the host said that while each of these hot dog styles was totally different, all of the vendors agreed on one thing, no ketchup. Fact, something that I saw posted on Facebook, in fact, my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim, uh, gotta put the plug in there, shared the ultimate hot dog style guide, and it's a picture of hot dogs from literally around the world. And as I go through it, there's the New York, the Seattle, the Sonora, uh, what else, the uh, Chicago, of course. No ketchup. There are a couple of exceptions. There's a Dodger dog, footlong dog, and a footlong bun, ketchup, mustard, chopped onion, relish. Well, that's at freaking Dodgers Stadium. I don't know if I'd trust a baseball hot dog. And there's the Italian, a deep-fried hot dog, an Italian roll, bell peppers, onions, french fries, ketchup, mustard. I've never heard of an Italian hot dog before, but if I'm going through here, there's Kansas City hot dog, doesn't have ketchup. Bagel dog doesn't have ketchup. Brazil, no ketchup. Chile, no ketchup. Um, France, no ketchup. Argentina, no ketchup. Vietnam, no ketchup. Amsterdam, no ketchup. So, all over the place, there is no ketchup on a hot dog. That's all there is to it. But do I ever put ketchup on a hot dog? No. Because I agree with Cecil Adams and Mel Plotsky. It drowns out the flavor of the beef. 
My friend Jim, uh, he argues that specialty ketchups are okay on hot dogs. That is, specially flavored ketchups that aren't your standard Heinz and Hunt's tomato ketchups. And I'd like to argue that perhaps you can make a ketchup exception for pork-based hot dogs. Although many diehards insist, nope, no exceptions. Pork-based, beef-based, no matter what. When you think about it, if you get a hot dog with everything, ketchup would be a bit redundant because, well, ketchup is tomato-based. And there are already tomato slices on a hot dog that's dragged through the garden, as we sometimes say here in the Windy City. And yes, that is an actual expression, on more than one occasion. I've heard someone order a hot dog and say, drag it through the garden. But yet it puzzles me as to why a properly dressed hot dog has both a pickle wedge and relish. Isn't that redundant as well? Or is it maybe okay because it's a dill pickle wedge and the recommended relish is usually a sweet pickle relish? I don't know. But with this whole no ketchup thing, I have to mention that there is a book called Never Put Ketchup on a Hot Dog. It's written by Bob Schwartz, who is an executive for Vienna Beef. It's a fun read. I haven't read it in several years. In fact, it's been updated since I read it. But if I recall correctly, it doesn't actually explain why you don't put ketchup on a hot dog, but it's more about some of the actual hot dog stands in and around Chicago with some extra bits about Vienna beef hot dog stands that Chicago expats opened up, including the hot dog joint Joe Montaigne ran in Los Angeles. And actually, he might still run that place. I wasn't able to find out. In addition to the usual places you can buy books, I know of at least one hot dog place in Chicago where you can buy Never Put Ketchup on a Hot Dog, and that's Wolfie's on Peterson near California Avenue on the far north side of the city, and not terribly far from where I live. They are an excellent place for hot dogs, burgers, Polish sausage. It's not my favorite. My favorite is Patio Beef on Broadway, which is even closer to where I live. But I do highly recommend Wolfie's nonetheless, especially if you're in a hot dog or hamburger mood on a Sunday because Patio Beef doesn't open on Sundays. Well, anyway, one day when I was on my way home from my second job, it was about lunchtime, so I stopped at Wolfie's. I ordered a char dog with mustard, relish, and celery salt. When they gave me my order... My hot dog actually had ketchup on it. Nothing but ketchup. You'd think that a Chicago hot dog place that's been in business since 1967 would make sure that ketchup wouldn't be allowed, or at the very least, when they saw ketchup on the ticket, they would have stopped everything to confirm that the customer indeed did want ketchup. But nope. I did give Wolfie's another chance a week later at the exact same time, though. Again, I asked for a char dog with mustard, relish, and celery salt. I received a hot dog with mustard, relish, and celery salt. Perfect. I rewarded them by buying a t-shirt. Plus, I'd been there several times already and loved the food, and the guy behind the counter seemed like a nice guy. I went in there once with a hoodie on from my alma mater, Joliet Catholic. He noticed it and said that when he was in high school, anytime his school would play against Joliet Catholic... He and his friends would actually take bets on how badly we'd beat their asses. That's ah, great to be a hilltopper. And there are those people, including some lifelong Chicagoans, who roll their eyes at people who preach against ketchup. I guess I can't argue with their logic of, it's your food, have it however you damn well want, because, well, let's face it, they're absolutely right. In fact, Cecil Adams ends his column about ketchup on hot dogs by saying, but hey, if you want ketchup, by all means get it. But as for that rule, again, it is not a Chicago thing. Not just Chicago, but California, the Southwest, Kansas, New York, 
even Canada, and even overseas, Vietnam, for God's sakes, they all avoid ketchup. It is a universal thing, my friends. If you do put ketchup on your all-beef hot dog, try it without it. And again, avoid French's and Heinz mustards, and try something mellower, and you might find it's a much more enjoyable experience. No, this stuff isn't getting to me. The shootings, the knifings, the beatings, old ladies being bashed in the head for their social security checks. Teachers being thrown out of a fourth floor window because they don't give A's. That doesn't bother me a bit. Or this job either, having to wade through the scum of this city, being swept away by bigger and bigger waves of corruption, apathy, and red tape. Now that doesn't bother me. But you know what does bother me? You know what makes me really sick to my stomach? It's watching you stuff your face with those hot dogs. Nobody, I mean nobody, puts ketchup on a hot dog. You know, one myth that I should have addressed in that segment was the myth that Chicago is an expensive place to live. Well, that's not really true. I've lived here for 13 years in the city, and it's surprisingly affordable, actually. In fact, I remember when I was still living in New Jersey, my office mates and I were talking about living expenses and things like that, and I remember she was looking through this article about expensive places to live. And she said, why is it cheaper to live in Chicago than it is to live here in New Jersey? But I don't know. It's, I really think that in a lot of cases, things just kind of even out. What might seem expensive in Chicago, like for example, gas prices, which they are, they're more expensive in Chicago than a lot of the suburbs. Not all the suburbs, though. You cross over into Evanston, there's not really a noticeable difference. Of, in fact, sometimes it's more expensive in Evanston. The trade-off is we don't drive that much. I, I have not driven to work in seven years, at least. I use mass transit, and I use my bike. As much as possible, I, I ride my bike to work and back, and that saves a lot of money. So we don't have to fill up our car very much. And I We use maybe, during the busier season, half a gallon a week. And it's so that's a blessing right there. And we only have one car. Uh, rent that we pay is about the same as what we paid in New Jersey, except we actually get a lot more for our rent here. And really, honestly, overall, the quality of life that I get living in Chicago is way better than anywhere else I've lived. And I'm just really thrilled to live here. I really am. Um, and really, Chicago has been no more of a financial burden on me than say Ocean Grove, New Jersey, where I lived for five years. So there you go. I'm not going to go on more about this all rah-rah Chicago stuff because it is now time for music for schnooks. And for music for schnooks, I'm going in a little bit of a different direction, but one that I've kind of been saying ever since I started this podcast, I said I would veer towards from time to time. Well, this is one of those times. Now, I am never going to claim to have a good singing voice, but I am proud of some of the songs I've managed to write over the years. Now, most of the songs I've written were done as homework projects from various songwriting classes I've taken at the Old Town School Folk Music here in Chicago. From time to time, I take songwriting classes there as kind of a way to force me to sit down and write something, because I always want to be creative, 
and I want to write music. So that's basically my impetus. I have to come to class prepared with something. And of course, you know, when you have to write something every week, it's not going to be the greatest piece of work in the world necessarily. Not going to be the worst necessarily either. But anyway, I think it was 2016 when I took Sue DeMel's songwriting class based on Italo Calvino's six memos for the next millennium. Italo Calvino, he was an Italian author. Uh, duh, Italian. <laughs> he was scheduled to be a speaker at Harvard University's Charles Eliot Norton lectures, and the lectures that Calvino was scheduled to deliver would have been in 1985, but unfortunately, Calvino died in the summer that year before he even finished writing the sixth memo, as it were. Well, what were these memos exactly? Well, from what I gather, they were supposed to cover six values that Calvino felt were important for authors to keep in mind in the coming millennium. The values were lightness, quickness, exactitude, visibility, multiplicity, and consistency. Uh, that last one, consistency, he died actually before he started writing that lecture, so only the first five were actually written, and they were published in a book. Now, Sue's class was an attempt to adapt Calvino's ideas to songwriting. Wait, did I just say was? Because she still offers that class, uh, unfortunately, only once or twice a year because she has since moved to Michigan. Anyway, Sue would read us excerpts from Calvino's lectures, and we'd talk about what Calvino was saying. And I'm going to be quite honest, I don't really remember much about what Calvino wrote about any of these values, really, but I'll try my best to explain but thankfully for this installment of Music for Schnooks, I only need to talk about lightness because the song that I wrote that I'm going to share with you now, God help us, was during the first assignment, which was about lightness. And what about lightness? I seem to remember that it has to do with, say, uh, giving the feel of buoyancy, perhaps, if you were floating on water. But, hey, whatever. There was a, a lot of light that I kept in mind when... Uh, I did this song, and uh, I'll get to that later on, but just a, a little bit of an explanation. Part of the assignment that Sue gave us was to write a song based on something we see in a science book. And I'm thinking, man, I don't have any science books at home. I, I, I believe in science. I just don't have any science books at home. What the, I don't feel like going to the library and finding a science book because it'll give me school flashbacks and that. And then it occurred to me, computer science is a science. But what did I think of? I have a book. In fact, I'm holding it in my hand right now. It is called The Book of Ruby, A Hands-On Guide for the Adventurous. The Book of Ruby, A Hands-On Guide for the Adventurous. It's written by, uh, I don't know how this person's name is pronounced, but it's spelled H-U-W, Collingborn. And it is a book about the Ruby programming language. And the reason that I have this book is when I was looking for a job, in uh, ideally in some kind of software development, probably about seven years ago. In fact, I am recording this seven years to the day that I began my unemployment from a company that I didn't really like working for in the first place. So it was a very happy day for me, actually. <laughs> But I had been wanting to work in some sort of IT profession because I had the aptitude, but I hadn't worked in IT yet, really. And I was working on a degree in software engineering, too. 
and I was going through want ads and things, and I found that people who develop Ruby on Rails make an outrageous amount of money. And what is Ruby on Rails? Well, it is a web development thing, really. Uh, Rails is what they call a framework based around the language Ruby. And a framework is basically something that helps you develop a little bit faster and it has built-in functionality so that you don't have to write a whole ton of code to do a specific certain thing necessarily. And there's some security built into it so you don't have to build your own security algorithms. And Rails is the framework of choice for Ruby. Problem is, I didn't know Ruby, so I wanted to learn the Ruby programming language. And when I was going through learning Ruby, I found the language itself was fine. There's, uh, It's easy enough to pick up on. There are some quirks about it, though. Like, I noticed that sometimes doing a very basic math addition problem will give you a weird decimal. And I went to, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but there's meetup.com, I think is what it is. And uh, there are meetups for just about any topic under the sun. And I would go to some development meetups from time to time, like JavaScript and PHP. And I went to a couple of Ruby meetups. And I found in these meetups that Ruby people are, I don't mean this in a terrible way, but they're kind of bizarre. They're kind of unusual. For one thing, in most low-level programming languages, such as C, JavaScript, PHP, which I do for a living, you end each command or statement with a semicolon. If you don't, then it throws an error. Except, well, JavaScript doesn't. JavaScript, you don't have to unless you enable strict mode, but it is generally considered good practice to end your statements, your lines with a semicolon, so that way they know when the next command begins when going through your source code. Ruby, however, it doesn't use semicolons. You just end at the end of the line, and you're done, period. Which is kind of off-putting for somebody who for years is so used to seeing semicolons everywhere. And if you run out of space on a line and have to continue on the next line, you have to use some sort of uh, backslash or something I don't remember for sure. But I remember at this meetup, it was led by a lady named Ginny Hendry. She sadly recently died. But Ginny said to me, and I quote, semicolons are evil. I was like, uh, okay, Ginny, uh, whatever. <laughs> and she told me that in good Ruby programming, you don't make your methods more than six lines long. Uh, a method, for those of you who don't know programming, uh, Certain programming language, many programming languages actually have what are called objects. And an object is basically a thing. Like, for example, you could create an object for a customer. Objects have properties. Well, what does a customer have? A customer has a phone number. A customer has an address, an email address. A customer, if you even want to get this level of detail, a customer might have hair color, skin color, eye color, uh, whether or not the customer wears glasses, etc., those are properties, and objects also have methods. Methods are functions that are specific to that particular object. What can a customer do? A customer can change his email address or her email address. A customer can add new information to his or her own profile. And changing the email address, that's a method. And what Ginny was telling me was that the functionality to change an email address or to add a birth date or whatever 
should be no more than six lines long. And I asked her, I said, well, what do you do if you have certain functionality that requires a hell of a lot more than six lines? She said, then you make a whole bunch of methods that don't go over six lines and you just call each method. And I've worked with code before in which a method has up to a thousand lines. So can you imagine the mess of a code that would have to be? And I, I don't know. I just couldn't dig this whole Ruby philosophy. And I'm going to open up and read a little bit of what is in this Ruby programming book I have. Uh, let me see. Uh, as you are now reading a book on Ruby, I think it is safe to assume you don't need me to persuade you of the merit. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. I'll take the somewhat unconventional step of starting with a warning. Many people are attracted to Ruby by its simple syntax and its ease of use. They are wrong. <laughs> Ruby's syntax may look simple at first sight, but the more you get to know the language, the more you realize that, on the contrary, it is extremely complex. And it goes on about talking about how Ruby is a very quirky language, and it really, really is. So I use this book as kind of a basis for lyrics. And literally on my way home from class that night, as I was walking to the bus stop, I had a, a melody already. I just needed to put some lyrics into it. So upon first listen, if you had, if I hadn't told you a damn thing, you'd probably think that this song you're about to hear is about a girl. It's called Dear Ruby, but it's not. It's not about a girl at all. It's basically taking all the quirkiness that I realized about this Ruby programming language and I dropped it in a song and the song is pretty simple. It's very short. It's only a little bit over two minutes, has very simple instrumentation, just a uh, six string guitar, six string acoustic guitar. One of the rare occasions I actually played a six string acoustic guitar. It's got a little bit of basic finger picking and I overdubbed a little bit of basic strumming just to fill out the sound a little bit. Very basic bass, very light, if you will. I tried doing a rhythm track, just like literally tapping the Ruby book as a rhythm track, but I decided to leave it out. And of course, I tried to sing this thing kind of softly, quietly, lightly, if you will. I hate to say almost in a Kenny Rogers way, because Kenny Rogers has a song. What is, what's it called? Like Ruby, don't let your something or I don't know. In fact, when Sue heard this song, she told me if I ever do it in public, maybe just as a sly wink, wink, I should sing a line from that song at the very end. But no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, anyway, um, here is the first song that I wrote for Sue DeMel's Six Memos class. Here is Dear Ruby. Uh, you've been warned about my vocals, so here you go. She's the rarest of the rare, and she'll make you feel you're rich. And you think that you can handle her if you dare But step cautiously around the surprise hazards within reach Even all her friends, well, they're just not sound My dear Ruby For her age, her hidden pitfalls are a curse She's just waiting to trap the wisest sage She goes on Yet you find she's very terse She seems simple at first glance But Lord, you're wrong 
dear Ruby. song <laughs> i i don't know i just curious as to what you think of the song itself i'm more concerned about the actual song than i am say my performance of it really and uh, if for god knows whatever reason you want to download a copy of that song separate from this podcast you can go to bandcamp actually scatteredfrog.bandcamp.com uh, I'll link that in the uh, online bibliography, of course. And uh, you may be asked for how much you want to pay. You can put in zero. It should allow you zero. I specifically told it allow zero. So uh, if you want it for free, there it is. Go get it. And um, yeah, I guess that's uh, episode 11, chapter 11 of Autobiography of a Schnook. Thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to reach out to me electronically, that would be fine. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And schnookpodcast also happens to be my handle on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I don't really use those that much, but I really should, shouldn't I? And of course, I have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. And believe it or not, I can actually tell you what I have planned for the next episode so far. At least music for schnooks is going to be a segment called The Black Triangle. It's not going to be a song, but it's going to be a story. And uh, hopefully the next episode will be a little bit more autobiographical. After all, this podcast is called Autobiography of a Schnook. So, yeah. And uh, thanks, of course, as always, to my wonderful wife, Lisa, who's been amazingly supportive since I first came up with the idea of this podcast and who continues to be supportive, um, even though she doesn't listen to podcasts. But hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I thank all of you for listening and remind you all that the good goes around. And if you don't find that to be true, I'm sure there will be other people who will be happy to help you out. Please uh, always look for the positivity. There's positivity in everything. So they say, at least. <laughs> anyway, thank you again for listening, and uh, I wish you all the best, my friends. 